like I said, I did, I do, did miss you guys. We were away in North Carolina last week, dropping the young one off at his new station, his new home. Uh, that was really kind of a nice time up there. But I'm happy to be back here, happy to be back with my Hammock Street family. We are beginning a new series today that will run for the next few weeks. The series is called, You're Not the Boss of Me. You're not the boss of me. If any of you know the Malcolm in the Middle uh, TV show, I was going to play the theme, but then I thought, eh, probably be distracting. Anyway, in this series, here's what we're going to do. We're going to be examining how we can learn to say no to the emotions that compete for control in our lives. So this is sort of a how-to series and a practical series, and I feel like this series is one that will benefit all of us because to one degree or another, we share this in common. Now, though some of us have a greater tolerance for it than others do, none of us really enjoys being told what to do. Wouldn't you say that's true? None of us really enjoys being bossed around. Indeed, this is something that nearly everyone manifests. It shows in everyone's life almost from the moment we are born. And if you're a parent, you already know this. About 3,000 years ago, King Solomon wrote this in Proverbs 22, start children off or raise your children up in the way they should go. And even when they are old, they will not turn from it. I can't tell you how many times I've had to say to a parent, it says, start off and old, but there's a spot in, that, in the middle there between starting off and old where you have a big issue with your children, and that's usually where people are when they come to talk to me about that. But the question is, why do we have to do that? Why do we have to start our children off on, or why do we have to train up our children on the way they should go? Why do we have to do that? And we see something in the Scripture that gives us sort of a command. We have to go, why? Why is that command there? And this one is there because our children come into this world not wanting to listen to us tell them what to do. Now, we're going to test that statement out because I don't like making a statement without providing evidence for it. So I'm going to ask you this question. You don't have to shout it out, but I'm going to ask you this question. In your experience, what is a young child's most commonly used word? No. Well, you did shout it out, but you're right. No. Indeed, the word no is consistently listed among the top 10 words that a child speaks first. No. No. And it's not like all the children in the world got together and agreed, we're all going to say no first, right? I mean, actually, to one degree or another, we're all born with that inclination. We're all born bent to go that way. That innate sense of resistance is something that all of us carry with us pretty much for our whole lives. And when you think about it, the entire ethos, the entire purpose of the Western world is premised upon that. All of us strive to get to that place in life where we have enough money or enough power or enough influence or enough prestige to be able to say no to whomever we want to say no to, don't we? It's a big part of the American dream, that personal independence. And that personal independence is simply another way of saying we can do what we want without being told otherwise, isn't it? Now, I've mentioned this concept to you before 
about myself, I really struggle when people try to tell me what to do, which could explain why I am an evangelical pastor and I don't practice law as a Jewish guy anymore because people told me what I was supposed to be doing and I said, mm, I'm not doing what you tell me to do, I'll do the opposite of that. Well, I learned this about myself pretty early on. When I was a freshman in college, uh, I was part of the University of Florida Army ROTC program, the Reserve Officers Training Corps program. And one weekend, we were heading up for training to Camp Blanding, which is up in North Florida. It's up in Stark, Florida. It's kind of near where the Florida State Penitentiary is. So we were up there for our training, and we spent our time marching in formation and practicing on the rifle range and running the obstacle course and learning to rappel down things, which was my favorite part. We got to climb this big tower and rappel down it, and then we got to rappel off a helicopter skid, and that was really cool. And anyway, on our last night of training, I was assigned watch duty over the barracks. And my watch duty shift was from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., certainly my best hours of the day. So at about 4 a.m., one of the cadet officers, who was a lieutenant by the name of Dwayne, nice fella, came up to me and he gave me a piece of advice. And this is what he said. He said, Silverglade, I have been watching you this weekend. And you have done very well with all the skill tests. But there's one area where you're absolutely failing. You are bombing out. Now, being all of 18 years old, at the time, my stomach kind of did a little flip, and I got really nervous, and my voice started to crack a little bit, and I said, what am I doing wrong? And he said, I've noticed that you have a really tough time taking orders, don't you? Well, you know, when you're called out, you're called out. I wasn't inclined to lie to the guy, and I said, well, yeah, I, I don't like being told what to do. To which he responded, yeah, I noticed, and so did everybody else. Can I give you a piece of friendly advice? I said, sure. He said, do yourself a favor. Don't go in the military. People who don't like to take orders don't do very well in the military. And you know what? That was one of those watershed moments in my life. It was right then and there I said, that's it. That's all I need to hear. I did not enroll the next year in the Army ROTC program and instead let my hair grow long and all of that stuff. Anyway, I don't like being told what to do. And to one degree or, neither, or another, neither do you. We all really prefer to call our own shots. But when we do that, we're usually convinced that we're calling the right shots. We don't intentionally call the wrong shots. We don't intentionally do things the wrong way. We always think we're doing the right thing. But there's a problem with that. And the problem is we don't always call the right shots for ourselves, do we? We like to think we always call the right shots for ourselves. We like to think we make all the right decisions, but we know if we're really being honest about it, that's not reality. The reality is there are certain things, there are certain aspects of our personalities, certain truisms about us that cause us to think and say and do things that we really ought not. And if we're ever going to effectively call our own shots, if we're ever going to effectively manage our own lives in a way that not only benefits us, 
but also benefits, builds up, edifies, and serves the people around us, including our family and friends, including our loved ones, including our community. If we're, if we're really going to have a life that draws people to Jesus, we're going to need to learn to address and manage those things that are within us that lead us down the less than desirable paths. And that's what we're going to be doing and talking about for the next few weeks as we work our way through this series in which we'll learn how to say no to the emotions that compete for control over our lives. You're not the boss of me. So why don't we pray and then we can get going. Heavenly Father, thank you for drawing us together as a community this morning. Thank you for providing us with the Bible, with your word, with the way that you've communicated your truth to us. Thank you for saving us from ourselves. Thank you for giving us a connection to you through Jesus God, the Son, who lived and died and rose again so we could be free, so we could be connected to you. God, we love you and we thank you. We praise you. Bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I just said, we're examining how we can learn to say no to the emotions that compete for control in our lives. Because the truth is, we really don't get into trouble because we won't take advice from other people. We get into trouble because we take our own advice. And our own advice always comes to us filtered. It comes to us filtered through the emotions that we have that distort our own sense of reality. I want you to think about it. Have you ever done something in your life that produced an undesirable outcome, that caused something you didn't want to happen to happen? And then you look back on it a few days, weeks, months, years later, and all you could do is ask yourself, what the heck was I thinking? Or why did I do that? Or how did I let that happen? We all have those moments, don't we? And we all have those moments primarily because we all have a tendency to take our own advice, which is always filtered through our emotions, which are triggered usually by an inaccurate view of the way things are. Now, before we move on, I want to ask you to think about something. You don't have to shout it out, but I'd like you to think about the answer to this question. What is the primary emotion that drives most of your behavior? What is your primary emotion? What is the primary emotion in you that competes for control over your life? We all have one. We all have, some of us have more than one. I'll tell you mine later on in the series, but start to give that some thought. Now, whatever the primary emotion is that competes for control over your life, you have Likely, by this point in your life, hopefully anyway, learn to monitor that to some degree. You've learned to deal with your life in spite of that emotion always cropping up. For instance, if your primary emotion is fear, you've probably learned to monitor and modulate that fear enough to be able to leave your house. Right? You're here. Those of you who are watching me at home, let's keep working. Okay. Maybe, maybe you've conquered your fear enough to go to work or to go shopping or to pick up the kids from school or drop off the kids at school. You've conquered your fear enough. You've managed it enough to be able to do those things. If your primary emotion is anger, 
you've probably learned to monitor your anger just enough to make a friend or two or get a job or maybe even get somebody to marry you, okay? We've all done it. We've all done it. We've all managed our emotions to some degree. We've had to. If we want to live in a society, we have to learn how to manage our emotions. Well, Jesus invited his first century followers, and Jesus invites us, to take that monitoring of the things that control us to a whole nother level. Now, I don't usually say whole nother anything, but I just got back from North Carolina, and they talk like that up there, and I kind of liked it. Some of the things they do, I kind of was digging it. So here we go. Jesus invited us to look beyond simply monitoring how we behave and begin to monitor what is actually causing us to behave that way, what is going on inside of us. And Jesus' command is so profound that it's changed the way that I manage all my relationships and interact with people every day. And, and I'm not making this up or blowing it out of proportion. I need to manage this every single day. I need to be careful what goes in, the input I get, the music I listen to, the news I read, the things I consume, so that I can manage how I interact with people all the time. And I hope Jesus' words can help you in the same way. But going through Jesus' words have also shown me that I have a long way to go. I mean, I have a long way to go before I'm really good at this. As I like to remind everybody, I'm not any different than anybody else is. I get to stand on a stage, and that's great. But I have toxic voices inside of me that want to take control, that communicate to me through my emotions. And if I'm not careful, if I let them, which I always end up regretting, as I'm guessing you do as well, we have a problem. So without any further chit-chat, today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 15. I will have the screens up on the, uh, the verses up on the screen from the New International Version. You could look at any Bible you'd like. A little bit of background. Recall that Matthew was one of Jesus' apostles. Now, little theology stuff here. Apostle is the specific term that the Bible uses for the 12 men whom Jesus called to be his Talmudim, his students. Disciples is a broader term for everybody who follows Jesus. Remember, disciple comes from the Greek word mathetis, which means an active learner. And so we're all disciples of Jesus, and that's what we do. Now, Jesus' apostles were apostles and disciples. We're disciples, but we're not apostles. Get that? In case that was confusing. Now, Before Jesus called him, Matthew was one of the worst kinds of sinners of his day. He was a tax collector. That meant that Matthew was a Jew who made a living not only kissing up to, pandering to the Roman oppressors, but stealing from his own people to boot. So he was not a good guy. He was not loved by anyone. And to the Jews, Matthew was what we call an anathema. He was somebody that was hated. We want to keep him away. He was one of the most hated kinds of people in Jewish society. And yet, it is that same Matthew who authored the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel we'll be looking at. That, it, that is his eyewitness account of Jesus' earthly ministry. All right, so that's who Matthew is. Matthew wrote this Gospel. He was a guy who nobody loved at first. He's a guy who saw this stuff firsthand. So here we go. In the morning after Jesus and the apostles had crossed the Sea of Galilee, which you read about in Matthew 14, and Jesus had just finished healing a bunch of people, we go to Matthew 15, verse 1. 
Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Now, Matthew was sure to start off here and point out that the Pharisees and teachers of the law had come from Jerusalem. He was indicating that they'd come to see Jesus not because they just wandered by, but they made the trip for a purpose. They came from the home office, if you will, not just looking for a chit-chat, but rather hoping to cause Jesus to say something that would trip him up. So they approached Jesus and they hurled this gotcha question at him as they were wont to do. Verse 2, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, this is one of many, many passages in the scripture that requires some background knowledge for us to fully understand it. Because when we read the English and when we read it here in 2023, we, we get an impression, and our main impression to this is, ooh, they don't wash their hands before they eat. Yeah, right? I mean, that's the way we would look at it. You ever been in a restroom and the person in front of you doesn't wash their hands and they walk out and you always go, I hope they're not serving me my food, right? But that's not the point here. See, in those days, people didn't wash their hands as much as we do. By the way, I don't think anybody in human history has washed their hands as much as we do, but that's another story. But they didn't wash their hands as much as we do because water was a commodity. They lived in a desert. There wasn't all that much water to go around, to splash around everywhere. They didn't have water parks, okay? What they did was they had ceremonial hand washing which used a very little amount of water. And there's a, in the Jewish uh, liturgy, there's a lot of hand washing that goes on. You wash your hands when you wake up. You wash your hands before you go to sleep, after you visit a grave, before you eat, after you eat, before your personal business, after your personal You're always washing your hands, washing your hands, washing your hands, still to this day. So ceremonial hand washing that's referenced here, this was guided by Jewish law. Now we have to ask ourselves the question before we move on what Jewish law guided it, right? We need to know these things. And this is where it gets kind of interesting. Now, the Jews recognized, and they still recognize, the observant Jews recognize today, two different kinds of law. One we're familiar with, it's called the written law. It's the law found in the Torah. The Torah just means law, the Hebrew word means law, which is our first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the written law. The oral law is the other law. They also refer to it as the traditions of the elders. And this referred to unwritten laws that were developed over time by a handful of Jewish leaders and Jewish sages and was passed down orally, passed down by word of mouth, and then followed by the people as a way for them to outwardly demonstrate to their neighbors, to their community, to their family, outwardly demonstrate their own righteousness. Now, oftentimes, when it suited their purposes, oral laws were kind of wielded by the leaders to exert control over the people, okay? So they took these laws, which are supposed to be God-centered, and the leaders were able to use these laws to control everybody to get them to do what they wanted. And as a result, Jesus didn't like stuff like that. Jesus wasn't keen on these oral laws. Jesus focused on the law of God as written, as recorded in the Torah, and then later in the prophets, and then later the writings and all the books that we know that went into the Old Testament. Anyway, as part of the oral law, One of the rules was that in order to keep a person ceremonially clean, 
not physically clean, not actually clean, ceremonially clean, and to make sure that they didn't accidentally violate any of the written dietary laws, one of these oral laws required them to perform a certain type of hand washing before they ate. Now, the problem with this law and all the non-written laws was that they tended to make the people look at God as being small and petty. Really? You care if I wash my hands before I eat? See, when you do that, you've got a God who's going out there fly-specking everybody, going, well, what are you doing? Oh, I don't like this about you. Well, as you can imagine, that wasn't the sort of thing that Jesus liked. So, here's how Jesus replied in verse 3. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Notice Jesus never answered a question directly. He answered questions with more questions. But Jesus did what he always did. He turned their question back around on them. Jesus said to them, Why are you breaking the written law of God just so that you can uphold your informal traditions? You're using these traditions to manipulate people into behaving the way that you want them to behave. And then to point out their hypocrisy, here's what Jesus said to them in verse 4. For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father and mother is devoted to God... They're not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You see what they're doing? They're saying that the, the Ten Commandments, I think it's commandment number four, says honor your father and mother. The Pharisees were saying, well, if I decide to be rude to my father and mother, but I call it being rude in the name of God, then it's okay. That's exactly what Jesus was calling them out for. They've nullified the word of God for the sake of their tradition. And Jesus said to them one of the things that you don't want Jesus saying to you. He said, you hypocrites. So essentially, Jesus is saying to them, instead of abiding by God's law, you've come up with your own rules that only you really understand. So you don't have to worry about following the written laws, but you can use these mysterious unwritten laws to keep everyone else under control. And Jesus said to them, I'm not playing that game. I am not interested. And then Jesus invoked the Hebrew prophet Isaiah, who prophesied about this sort of hypocrisy 750 years before Jesus was even born. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15, verse 7. Isaiah was right about you when he prophesied. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Isn't that amazing that Isaiah predicted this is going to happen 750 years before? Can you predict anything that's going to happen 750 years from now? You could try. I guess we have no way of knowing. But this quote from Isaiah reflected a profound insight. We're going to be returning to this insight for the next few weeks. But in it, God, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, referring to the ancient Israelites, noted that they'd learned to say all the right words, even though they didn't mean a thing they were saying. God knew that they were just playing a game. 
God knew that they turned religion into a game that they would always win and the people would always lose. And are you ready now for an insight that you've probably already had? Religious leaders have a bad habit of doing this, don't they? Religious leaders have a bad habit of creating rules to this game that they call religion that they can always win, and they use those rules to manipulate people. Well, while Jesus was teaching this lesson, a crowd began to gather. A crowd always gathered where Jesus was teaching. The religious leaders had gone to great lengths to supplant God's true word, to replace God's true word with their own rules so they could maintain their power over the people. Everything's always political. And as a result, many in the crowd were getting tired of it. They were growing weary of these religious leaders. And as a result, they always enjoyed seeing them get what they deserve, get their comeuppance, if you will. And Jesus was more than happy to oblige. So he looked around, and then he said this, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. But what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Now, to the Jews, this statement was radical. For 2,000 years, they'd been paying attention to all these little rules about what to eat, how to eat, how to wash, and all these things. And Jesus is saying, what goes into someone's mouth without traditional hand-washing having taken place first, what goes into somebody's mouth, let's say, the wrong way by accident because they didn't first properly wash, what goes into somebody's mouth, even if the person hasn't followed the made-up traditions, is not the thing that defiles them. It does not put them at odds with God. God is not that petty. God is not that small. God is not out to get you. God is not always looking to put you and me into a timeout for our breaches of tradition or practices. But do you know what does defile you? The things that come out of your mouth. That's what Jesus said to them. And with that, Jesus turns on his heel and he walks away. Boom. Roasted. That's it. Mic drop. And the religious leaders had no response. And then, when Jesus was alone with the apostles, here's what he said to them. So this is the next verse. (laughs) This is is what the apostles said to Jesus. This is crazy. They said, "Uh, Jesus, um, did you know the Pharisees were offended when you said that? Jesus, did, did you realize you were ticking them off? Which is actually pretty funny when you think about it, right? Uh, Hey, omniscient Lord, um... Did you realize that you offended the Pharisees when you said that? Did you realize that? And imagine Jesus going, really? Jesus is like, yeah, uh, mm, I realize that. Uh, did you forget that I know what you need before you even know it? Like, did you know how much I know? Huh? I'm God. And then Jesus responded to his guys, to, to his apostles, to the guys, by telling them, leave them. Leave the Pharisees. Leave the the scribes, the writers of the law, they're blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. By the way, that's where that expression comes from. In other words, those Pharisees, they might have started off with good intentions and good teaching, but they abandoned God's law. And over time, they decided to follow their own law, their own religion. Leave them. They're blind guides. And if you follow these blind guides, you'll end up in the pit as well. Jesus is like spitting pure fire here. He is, wow. 
Now, here's the problem with all this. And then we'll look at how it impacts you and how it impacts me. When Jesus told them that it doesn't matter what you put in your mouth, it matters what comes out of your mouth, it sounds like Jesus is dismissing the entire Mosaic law, the entire law of Moses as it relates to the dietary requirements. If you go through the Torah, you'll read a lot of dietary requirements that Moses did provide in the Torah. But Jesus wasn't doing that at all. Remember, Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. But they needed to hear that. They needed to be reassured of that because they'd heard from the people, from the critics, over and over again. They've heard people accuse Jesus of being a lawbreaker, and he most certainly was not a lawbreaker. How do we know that? Because Jesus was perfect, and he kept the law perfectly, of course, because he was perfect. So they were wondering how what Jesus said didn't violate Moses' law. Well, then, guess who asked the next question? It was the bold one, Peter, who always asked questions. Peter spoke up, and here's what he said. Boss? Could you explain this parable to us? Now, this is interesting and kind of funny because I've always read this as being very lighthearted but slightly exasperated. So here's Jesus. So he's already gone, oh, like, did I realize that I offended the Pharisees? Yes, that was my intention. Okay, great. And then Jesus says to Peter, seriously, are you still so dull Seriously, Peter, you don't get it, do you? Still. And then he gave us a look into the thing that is most important to God, the thing that he wanted his followers to understand in their very religious environment. And here's a spoiler alert. Jesus began to tell them that God is not most concerned with how our behavior affects him. Let's take a brief detour here. If any religious person, particularly a religious leader, a pastor, a priest, prominent Christian, tries to tell you what you need, you need to do to make God happy with you or to stay in God's good graces, it has everything to do with some sort of religious tradition and not with what the Scripture says. And if some religious leader tells you that, run. Run. Get away from them. Run right back to Jesus. Because Jesus was amazingly clear and Jesus was remarkably consistent about the fact that the law was not given to make God happy. Sadly, that's the notion that's been conveyed throughout the Christian church over the years. But Jesus didn't say that. In fact, Jesus said the opposite. He was very clear that God's law was given to you and God's law is given to me for you and for me with our best interests in mind. God is not interested in making himself happy by controlling our behavior, period. You have to understand that. You're not doing it for God. You're doing it because God's given you the tools because he loves you and wants the best for you, so you're doing it for you. All right? Keep that there. Don't expand it too much because then we get into some rocky territory, which is a topic of another sermon. Anyway, back to our lesson. Are you still so dull? This is not scolding. This is not bullying. This is not making fun of them. Jesus is just gently ribbing them. And he continues, are you really that dense? Do you really not understand this yet? And then, and you parents, if you have kids here, you might not like this, but I didn't write it. It's in the Bible, so I have to tell it to you. Jesus uses a poop reference. 
Yeah, you didn't think so, but there it is. I did not write. I'm just sharing it with you. So Jesus asked them, and I'm guessing he was kind of cracking up when he asked it, but here's what he asked. This is verse 17. I didn't write this, Matthew. Did. Ready? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out the body? Jesus said to them, fellas, <laughs> you're all grown-ups. By this point in your life, you all know this. When you eat something, it goes down your esophagus, into your stomach, then into your intestines, and finally it comes out, right? I'm pretty sure they all got this one. Yeah, God, we get this. Yeah, Jesus, we get this. But Jesus' point here was, if you eat something that you shouldn't, or if you eat something in a way that you shouldn't, what happens to it? The same thing happens to all food. It goes in, and it comes out. No one's harmed. But then he got serious. So then he turns a little. Now he's going to give you his lesson. But the things that come out of a person's mouth defile them. Jesus is saying your heavenly father is far more concerned with what comes out of the mouth than about what goes in the mouth. In fact, the things that come out of the mouth are the things that defile them. In this context, defile is to be at odds with God. So Jesus is now kind of implying, do you want to know what puts you at odds with God? When something comes out of your mouth that puts you at odds with the people whom God loves. What comes out of our mouths can put us at odds with people. And when we're at odds with people, we're at odds with God who created those people in his image. And this is one of Jesus' major teaching themes. You'll see it over and over again. God loves you, and God loves the you next to you. And God loves the you in front of you, and behind you, and beside you, all over. God loves all the yous. And when you do something to hurt someone whom God loves, God isn't pleased. That's how you defile yourself. So you're no longer to be concerned about offending God by failing to do something that someone told you you needed to do to keep God happy. Remember, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In fact, Christ died for us 2,000 years before we were born. So how is it that we could possibly earn our way into God's good favor? We cannot do it. And it's never been that way. We've never been able to earn God's favor. And Jesus came to show us what God's really after. And that's what we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks. Let me go ahead and now put in the words that I left out from this verse 18. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. And these defile them. The things that come out of a person's mouth come from the person's heart. And it's those things that put a person at odds with God because those things put a person at odds with the people that God loves. The source of our defiling, the source of our offensive, problematic thoughts, the source of our offensive, problematic words and deeds is within each one of us. It's in us already. That's the only way it can come out of us. Jesus continues, verse 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. By the way, I, I know you know this already, but here Jesus is not talking about the organ in our chest called the heart, right? He's talking about our hearts, our being, our essence, the thing in, inside of us that makes us our true selves. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Our bad behaviors begin with our thoughts, with our minds, Everything, everything we've ever done bad begins with a thought. 
Every murder begins with a thought. Adultery begins with a thought. Sexual immorality, theft, lies, jealousy, all begin with a thought. The gospel writer Mark also wrote about this encounter, this conversation. He included some of the other things that Jesus said begin with a thought. Greed and malice and envy and arrogance and folly. Folly begins with a thought. And you're going, what is folly? We don't use that word often. I think we should bring it back. It's kind of an old-timey word. Folly means bad judgment, right? Folly. We get the word fool from the word folly. Have you ever done something and looked back and said to yourself, how could I have been such a fool, right? That's folly. And Jesus said that their source originates in your heart and, verse 20, these are the things that defile a person. These are the things that put you at odds with God because these are the things that put you at odds with the people whom God loves. But, Jesus said, eating with unwashed hands? No, that doesn't do it. That doesn't defile them. Eating with unwashed hands, that is nothing. Now, before we wrap up, I want, I want to say one more thing. Don't misunderstand. Religious rituals and religious traditions can be important, can be good, and can be meaningful to us. But they're just not the means by which we keep God happy and satisfied. If you have a prayer ritual that you like, continue. I have plenty. Continue. If you've got a reading, Bible reading, study, all of it, all good, just know that's to bring you closer to God. That's not to make God happier with you. See, this is where the church often gets it wrong. But this is where Jesus was really clear. Our traditions and our practices might be great for helping us experience our closeness with or our connection to God. They might be very meaningful for us. And that's a good thing, but they don't do anything for God. So don't stop doing those things if they work for you, but just know that they're for you and not for God. It's how you treat others that makes all the difference. Jesus said it's not what goes in, it's what comes out. Because what comes out reflects what's in there already. So for the next few weeks, we're going to practice monitoring what comes out. We're going to get a handle on what comes out in our behaviors. We're going to begin monitoring the thing that is the source of evil that oftentimes comes out of us. And over the next few weeks, we're going to get specific with some things, which the Apostle Paul actually modeled for us in some of his teaching. And we're going to identify some of the things that live within us. And then we're going to learn how to develop the discipline to say to those things, hey, bad stuff that lives in our hearts, we're not going to listen to you anymore. Hey, bad stuff that lives in my heart. You want to know something? You're not the boss of me. In fact, let's get a head start. This is interesting. Surprised me when I learned it. Research indicates that we are more inclined to believe something if we hear it said to us. Isn't that interesting? If you hear it said, you're more inclined to believe it. And what's remarkable is that even works with our own self-talk. So if we are people that are habitually down on ourselves... If we are people who say things out loud to ourselves like, oh, you're so stupid. Or, oh, I always mess things up. Oh, how could I do that? If you do that long enough, you'll actually start believing your own voice. You'll actually start believing that you're stupid and you don't do things well and you're bad. But on the flip side, if we say encouraging things to ourselves out loud, we actually start believing those things too. 
Well, during this series, I would like us to start implementing this technique when it comes to monitoring our hearts. So in a moment, if we could all do it together, and you don't have to if you don't want to, but if we could together begin to get in the habit of pointing out to ourselves the things that we don't want governing our lives. I'd like for us to get into the habit of telling those things they're not the boss of us. So to start, and I want to ask you to do this all the time, but I like to do it once in a while. Let's say together on the count of three, you're not the boss of me. Ready for that? One, two, three. You're not the boss of me. Okay, very nice. You don't have to repeat after me, but here's how you can use this. So anger, you're not the boss of me. Envy, you're not the boss of me. Insecurity, you're not the boss of me. And fear, are you listening fear? You're not the boss of me. Now, this works with everything. This works with all the stuff that we have clicking around in our brains. But can you imagine just how different your life would be if you learned to do this when you were a child? How about when you were in middle school, the worst time to be a human, right? When you're in middle school where your brain isn't working right anymore and your body's doing all sorts of crazy things and your friends aren't your friends. And blah, blah, blah. Can you imagine if you learned this in middle school? Hey, fear, you're not the boss. Hey, insecurity, you're not the boss of me. Hey, vanity, you're not the boss of me. What if you learned that in middle school? What if you learned it in high school? What if you learned it in college? Imagine the better decisions you would have made if you'd learned to monitor your heart like this for fear. Imagine if you didn't act out of fear like you had in the past, or out of anger, or out of envy, or out of greed, or out of lust. Imagine if instead of acting on those things, you were able to stop those things in their tracks and tell them that they had no power over you, that they were no longer the boss of you. Imagine, imagine this. How different would your upbringing have been if your father had not allowed his anger to be the boss of him? How different would your upbringing have been if your father did not allow his guilt or his insecurity to be the boss of him? How about if your mom's fear was not the boss of her anymore? If her envy wasn't the boss of her? If her anger wasn't the boss of her? Whatever it was, imagine if your parents didn't allow that to impact the way they raised you. Imagine if we could teach our children to monitor their hearts, to keep those things from, running, from ruining their lives and running their lives. Well, during this series together, I'd like to learn to pay attention to the stuff that's in our hearts so that we understand it. Because eventually, whatever's in your heart is going to come out and it's going to cause other people pain. And here's the reason that this is so important. Because the people closest to you are experiencing the overflow of your heart right now. If your heart is filled with fear, the people closest to you are experiencing that fear. Anger, same. Greed, same. Right now, every day. And you're experiencing the overflow of their hearts as well. So some of us need to look in the mirror and get better at monitoring our hearts. And if you are a follower of Jesus, this is critical. Do you know why? Because we already have a boss of us, a better boss Better than anger, better than fear, better than envy, better than greed, better than lust. And here's what your better boss, here's what my better boss says to us. And it's the same thing that he said to Matthew in Matthew 11. He said, uh uh uh, -uh. come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, if Matthew, with the issues and problems that he had in his life, if Matthew could understand this, 
We ought to be able to understand this. If Matthew could do this, we ought to be able to do this. If Matthew, with all those inferior bosses in his life, greed, duplicity, covetousness, dishonesty, jealousy, insecurity, if he could learn to turn from those bosses to Jesus, if Matthew could learn to just come to Jesus, then we ought to be able to do the same. Because Jesus has promised us all that he can give us something that those inferior bosses never will. Jesus has promised that if we will ignore those inferior bosses and go to him, he will give us the rest that we so desperately need and desire. As he said in Matthew 14, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. See, the world can only give us the appearance of peace, the appearance of peace on the outside. But thankfully, the world and all its pitfalls is not the boss of us. Jesus offered us something much better, true peace. The peace that comes from within, the peace that lives in our hearts, if we'll follow him. Jesus wants to be the boss of us, which is what happens when we turn from the broken, messed up, sinful way that we are, that we come into the world, and we turn to him, the perfect Savior who was born, lived, died without ever sinning, but then rose again from the dead and ascended to God's right hand so he could set us free. Jesus set us free through his death and resurrection. And when we make Jesus the boss of us, we'll be on our way to living the abundant life to which God has called us, and we'll be on our way to disconnecting from those bosses that pull our hearts far from the God who loves us. See, Jesus bids us, Jesus tells us, come to me so we can find our perfect peace and rest, and we can serve as our perfect boss has called us to serve. Jesus and Jesus alone will help us to silence those bossy voices that wreck our lives from within. Amen? We will pick up here next week. Won't you pray with me? Father God, we are excited to see how we can overcome the things that have always held us back, the things that have always scared us, the things that have always bossed us around. Father, we're excited for the new path that you'll set us on so that we can live connected to you and close to you and in your love and we don't have to be so concerned about all those things that scare us in this world that upset us in this world and that bring us down so god as we continue on from here allow us to be lights in our community allow us to be the example of your son jesus as we live out day to day and show them what it means to be a follower of jesus our savior we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name.